Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this podcast, we've been looking at the world of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. And if you like what you're hearing, I want you to tell your neighbors and friends and be sure to rate us with five stars on your podcast app. Uh, We are actually nearing the end of Jesus' earthly life, as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. And in fact, it's the Wednesday. It's the last Wednesday of Jesus' life. In 24 hours, he will be betrayed. He will be arrested. But on this night, something so beautiful happens, it is remembered by all four Gospels. And as we learned again and again and again, it's another lesson in the difference between means and ends. I'm going to read to you Mark chapter 14, and it's beginning with the third verse, and it's called the anointing at Bethany. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly anointment of nard, and she broke open the jar, and she poured the ointment on his head. But some who were there said to one another in anger, Why was this anointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. John's gospel, which is John chapter 12, remembers this story happening in another place. We're told it happened in the house of Simon the leper. John remembers it in the home of the in the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus's friend. But a good clue to understanding that they're both the same story is the mention of Simon the leper. Mark's gospel is very scant with the details. In podcasts back, I've told you, anytime you see a special word or something added into a story, pay attention because Mark really, really wants you to hear it or to see it. And adding that it's Simon the leper uh, means that this is someone who has been healed by Jesus and also become a disciple. Probably it's also the leper that's mentioned in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, way back at the beginning of the story. I'll read something to you. This is Mark chapter 1, beginning with the 40th verse. A leper came to Jesus, begging him and kneeling to him, kneeling before him, said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and he said to him, I do choose, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And after sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, to spread the word, so that Jesus could no longer go out into a town openly, but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter." Leprosy could be any number of skin diseases, but one thing is common. Leprosy kept you away from other people. And so now what you have here is a man who has been restored. He's been restored to union with God and with each other. And boy, can he sell. He becomes the greatest salesman in the Galilee. Forget Peter, forget the other disciples. Uh, This guy can raise a crowd. And so here, what we're told in this home of Simon the leper, it is communicated to us that it's a group of friends who've been touched by Jesus, 
who welcome him in on that last Wednesday night. Here at St. Luke's, we're an Episcopal church, which means that we are a member of the Anglican communion. And as such, we have a cool thing in our church in that we remember something called apostolic succession, which sounds like a mouthful, but it's really simple if you think about it. Apostolic succession means that for God so loved the world that he became one of his own creation, that Jesus lived on this world and ate on this world and slept on this world and loved on this world and died on this world before rising again on Easter. Apostolic succession means that Jesus touched other people. He had special friends. He had the disciples who were who were touched by him. And eventually these disciples would go out and become leaders in the church. And at some point we would call them bishops. And so these bishops would touch other people, which means that when we're touched by our leadership in the church, which means the formal rite of confirmation, which might be ninth graders or might be adults joining the church, when the bishop touches their head, we've been touched by someone who's been touched, by someone who's been touched, by someone who's been touched all the way back to Jesus. We are a community of this intentional touch. But I want to spread this out just a little bit more. We Christians believe in the incarnation, which means that if God so loved the world, he became one of his own creation, which means that all of us worldwide have been touched by someone who's been touched, by someone who's been touched, by someone who's been touched, all the way back to Jesus. We live in a world of touch, which means that there are moments with God infused in them, and this certainly could be our worship, this certainly could be the bread and wine of our communion or baptismal water, but it could also mean a thank you note or the eyes of our children or a sunrise or a good dream or any time when we find drops of God in our everyday world. So it's in this house of Simon the leper to remind us that we've all been touched in a special way by Jesus when it happens. And boy, is it a shock. A woman comes in with a, an ointment, a, a jar with a costly ointment of perfume. We're told that the jar is of nard, which is imported from India. It's very expensive. And a denarius was a day's wage. So if it was worth 300 denarii, this is worth several thousand dollars. And she takes the alabaster jar and she breaks the jar, which is not even necessary, revealing the completeness of her gift. So what we see here is not only are we in a house of people who've been touched by Jesus, but we see a complete extravagant lesson in stepping out in faith. She's all in. And if you've been watching or reading the story or keeping up with with prior podcasts, remember to compare this to the rich man in Mark chapter 10 who couldn't leave everything behind or with blind Bartimaeus who did leave everything behind when he left his cloak in the road, the cloak that he would use to beg for change. What we see here is a lesson of being all in when it comes to following God. And this wasn't just a lesson by Jesus or for Jesus' disciples. It had happened before. Turn with me sometime to 1 Kings chapter 19, and you'll see the story of Elisha becoming Elijah's disciple. And I'll read just a few verses to you now. Uh, Basically, it's it's another story like the alabaster jar. I'll read it to you. Uh, It's 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. So he set out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing. And there were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he was the 12th. Elijah passed by and threw his mantle over him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. Then Elijah said to him, Go back again. What have I done for you? He returned from following him, and he took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. 
Elisha would literally burn his bridges. He would boil the oxen and he would break the yoke and he would leave everything behind. And Jesus would say to a would-be follower in Luke chapter 9, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He was referring to this story. And it's always been the same way. Those of us who want to follow God need to be all in. Think of the stories that you know. The disciples left their nets. Bartimaeus left his coat. And now she's a disciple. The same story again. What this says to me is that, is that God wants all of us. And we have a tendency to compartmentalize. But when, we, when we're called to be disciples of Jesus, that's a complete mission for us all. It's a complete command What this means is there's no such thing as Sunday morning behavior and Saturday night behavior or Sunday morning behavior and Monday morning behavior. If we're business people, then we're called to be Christian business people. And if we're parents, we're called to be Christian parents. And if we're friends, we're called to be Christian friends and so on and so on and so on. Uh, Christ becomes the lens, the pair of glasses through which we see everything. We too can go all in. There's some new archaeology going on in Jerusalem that's pretty exciting. A lot of it was fueled by the fact that COVID left the country uh, bereft of pilgrims for a couple of years, which means that archaeologists have had the time to find some new things. Uh, Below uh, a dig called the City of David, which travels down the southern steps of the Temple Mount down to the Pool of Siloam, a drop of about 300 feet, it's pretty dramatic, and beneath what had been the original City of Jerusalem, uh, there is the ancient water source of the city called the Gihon Spring. And outside this water source, they found a chamber with two rooms. It is quite exciting because we believe that something very important happened uh, as in, this, in, in these two rooms, or at least was staged in these two rooms for this to happen. You can look it up. It happens at 1 Kings chapter 1, which involves the succession plan of who will follow King David. King David is on his deathbed, and one of his sons, Adonijah, is setting himself up to be the king, which is not God's plan. It's not David's plan. Most importantly, it's not Bathsheba's plan, who is king's, would be King Solomon's mother. So after they talk it out and they see the threat, King David sends Solomon down to the Gihon Spring with the high priest and the prophet, and he's anointed. And we believe, we believe now we found the staging area for that anointing. Kings are anointed. This is how a king is made. Uh, The woman comes into the room and anoints Jesus. This is how a king is made. In other words, she's committing a royal act. She's not merely now being a disciple. She's become a prophet. Solomon was anointed king by a prophet. Jesus is now anointed king by a prophet, but a different kind of king. Okay, in past podcasts, as we've been leading up to this, this last, uh, these last few verses of Mark's gospel, think of the symbols of the last week of Jesus' life. Riding a colt uh, into the city on Palm Sunday. When a king would ride a colt, that means that the war was finished. If a king would, excuse me, yeah, that's right, that the war was finished. If a king would ride a war horse, uh, that means that there was still a battle to be done. Imagine how provocative that would have been. What has been finished? When you're staring the Romans, staring at the Romans in your temple, in your temple precincts, what war have you finished? Who will be the enemy now? Uh, speaking in apocalyptic, as if he's quoting the book of Daniel, which refers to the Son of Man at the end of time reigning like a king and now being anointed by this woman for his kingly ministry. Well, if they knew how kings were made, they also had one king in their mind, they all did, and that would be the Herod the Great and then his successive 
children, mostly named Herod, who would never match up to his greatness, but they knew what a king would look like over them. In 34 BC, the Roman Senate granted Herod the Great the title King of the Jews, and he was the King of the Jews. They could see evidence of Herod everywhere. He would go on to build in the world of Jesus a super port called Caesarea to control their commerce. He would build a super weapon called Masada to control their defense. And then, and then his, his greatest accomplishment would be to rebuild the house of God, the temple, into the wonder of the ancient world. This is what kings can do. They build. But he was cruel and he was impetuous and he took what he wanted and Herod murdered his favorite wife and eventually two of her sons because this is also what kings do. Except this king, Jesus, he was anointed to die for us. In order to understand the power of the Easter story, we need to understand the burial details in the world of Jesus. Uh, the land of Jesus is dry, and, and in the city of Jerusalem, it sits on limestone, which means it's very poor. So there are lots of holes, lots of caves. Any cave can be a tomb. And so what they would do is, before, before the exile, what they would do is put a body inside of a cave and then come back a year later and sweep the bones and the ash to the back of the cave so that you would be gathered to your ancestors. After the exile, which is the return of God's people back to Jerusalem, they would take the bones and the ash a year later and put them in a little box called an ossuary, and these are everywhere. But first they would anoint the body with perfume before they put it into the cave. And so this too is what the woman is doing. Think of all the things that are happening all at once. She's now a disciple. She's all in. She's a prophet. She's anointed him as a king. And now she's anointed him for his burial. There's a scene that we will cover again in the next podcast or so, and it's Mark chapter 15, verse 25. And we can now appreciate when we know what we know about kings, and we know about anointing, we know about what happened on Wednesday night, the irony of this scene. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they, with them, they crucified two bandits, one in his right hand, one in his left. And those who passed by derided him, saying, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest, along with the scribes, were also mocking them among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Well, of course, they taunted him. They all knew the irony of a powerless Herod, Herod who built and Herod who had wealth and this man who had nothing but the clothes on his back and now was taken from him. They knew the irony. And on this night before it all went down, this Wednesday night, we have an outsider story of an outsider king. We have an outsider story. Bethany is outside the royal city. Bethany is the home of a leper, the ultimate outsider and anointed by a woman, an outsider and a breach of etiquette. If we live in the kingdom of God, friends, we're going to live in an outside world with an outside king. We've all got our stories, but I remember when I was a very young man, I started a soup kitchen and didn't know what I was doing. A friend of mine, Henry Moore, who's now gone to heaven to be with Jesus, helped me. We started to try to feed hungry people in a poor neighborhood in Montgomery. We had an old shed and we had donated food like green bean medley and slices of ham and bread and clean peaches. And so with that simple menu, we had people lined up around the around the block, hungry people, working poor, 
uh, parents, homeless people. They all came to eat our food. And I remember one day we were we were struggling to get it all out there. We, we, were, we were about to run out of bread. And I looked at Henry. He asked me what we thought we would do. And I said, well, we'll just change the menu to ham slices and green bean medley and clean peaches. And we were working the line in this beautiful, ethereal little old lady with silver hair. This is in the days before GPS. We didn't advertise a soup kitchen. She had no way of knowing where we would be or why, why, why she would even be in this neighborhood. And she had two bags, two sacks, grocery sacks full of bread. And she chuckled to herself and she said, y'all going to think I'm crazy, but the Lord told me to come here and bring you some bread. And it was a lesson in the kingdom of God, a topsy-turvy, upside-down world where where two boys try to feed a neighborhood and a prophet brings them bread just when they need it. It's a world of wonder and it's a world of grace and it's a wonder of surprises and it's a world of misfits and outsiders. And this is how we see the power of the king can't let this story go without going back to verse four, though. Some complained about this gift, this costly anointment poured over Jesus' head, because they always do, right? Someone's always going to complain. And on one level, they were right. On Passover Eve, it was customary to say to give money to the poor. It was customary to make a big gift. And wow, 300 denarii, all those thousands of dollars in a world of haves and have nots, that would have been quite a big gift. The the 12 disciples and Jesus would have gotten a status over this. They would have gotten a plaque, right? Or at least some recognition uh, for giving such a big gift to the poor. And Jesus said, you always have the poor with you and you can have a lifetime of service to them, but you're confusing means and ends. You're confusing check boxes that miss the real work of the kingdom. Here, Jesus saw a woman who was all in, just like Elisha, just like Bartimaeus, just like the disciples, Just like anyone who dared to follow, she was all in and she saw the gift and she got it. And the gift is service to the king and the kingdom of God. Well, it's about to get real, folks. So let's keep this going and um, we'll see you next time. Thanks.